You can have a seat. <clears throat> well, good morning again. Um, today I have an extremely uh, ambitious and maybe even risky uh, sermon for you. It's risky because I'm just going to break a whole bunch of my own sermon rules, all right? Um, I have a lot of big ideas, maybe too many to talk about today. Um, I have zero practical application at the end of the sermon, all right? Also, we're going to talk about um, the most important part of the Bible that's not actually part of the Bible. I'll explain that in a second. And I'm going to try to show you that one of the most famous stories that we all know is actually about something that you have never, ever thought about. All right? So, a bit ambitious and risky, but we're going to all give it a try together. Now, the part of the Bible that we're going to talk about that's not actually part of the Bible is called the intertestamental period. All right? And it's this big fancy long word just means exactly what you think it means. It means the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is really, really important because... If you're one of those people who took on this crazy challenge of reading through the entire Bible in 2023, then over the next few weeks, you're going to be reading the last few books of the Old Testament, all right? Yay, you've almost made it, all right? Um, Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, You've almost made it through the Old Testament, and then we're going to be jumping into the New Testament. We're going to read the book of Luke that talks about Jesus and his life. And so I want to just help you understand what's happening and bridge that gap between these two things. But even if you are not reading through the Bible this year, it's really important for you to understand this intertestamental period as well because you cannot understand Jesus if you don't understand the intertestamental period. Uh, You cannot understand what he said and what he did unless you understand the context in which he Came. And so we're going to walk through a little bit of history. We'll do that in a little bit. But first, I want to back up and talk briefly about the larger story of Israel in the Old Testament. And in fact, what I want to do is give you four words that define the story of Israel. And all the words start with the same letter, so you'll be able to remember them and write them down. There'll be a quiz at the end of the sermon. Not really. Um, and I'll say this. If you're not a Bible person, and maybe you're here and you have never read the Bible, or the Bible sort of scares you or it's confusing or it feels irrelevant, and we've already talked about the Bible too much and it's a little overwhelming, um, these four words maybe will help you a little bit, but they don't just explain the story of Israel. They also explain the plot line of every single superhero movie and epic film that you've ever seen, all right? So hang with me. Let's jump in. Here's the first word. It's the word election. Uh, The earliest Israelites knew that something was wrong with the world and that God was in the process of fixing it and that God had chosen or elected Israel to be the means by which he would fix or rescue the entire world. And so it's like Israel is going to be the hero of the story. Now, Israel comes from really humble means. In fact, it starts with just a man and a woman named Abraham and Sarah. There's nothing very extraordinary about them. There's nothing special about them. In fact, the first few stories you read about them, you think they are the most unlikely characters to be heroes. They're not even sure why God has chosen them. 
But God says, it's going to be through you and your descendants that I am going to rescue the world from all that is wrong with it. And this is how all superhero stories start. We learn right away that the world needs to be fixed because there's violence or there's crime or there's oppression or there's an evil empire out there. And then the story usually zeroes in on one very unlikely person. Maybe it's Peter Parker, right? Or Bruce Wayne, both teenager orphans. Maybe it's Ray. We don't even know her last name. She's just from the planet Jakku, right? Or maybe it's the little hobbit Frodo from the quiet village of the Shire. They all come from humble beginnings. They are unlikely heroes, but they have this deep internal sense that something about them is different, that they have been called, chosen, elected. And this is the beginning of Israel's story. The second word is the word exodus. All right, the Exodus is a formative event because as most of us know, Abraham's family gets bigger and bigger and bigger and grows and grows until they finally find themselves in slavery in Egypt. But God rescues the people. He saves them from oppression under the bully Pharaoh and then he raises them up to defeat the armies of Egypt. And this is when Israel becomes a nation. This is when they embrace their identity and their vocation to be God's people, to be his heroes, to be the ones through which he will bring his rescue into all of the world. And again, this is how most epic stories go. There's this sense early in the movie that our hero is different, right? They've been chosen, that's election. But then there's usually an early crisis, Right? There's an exodus event where our hero for the first time becomes aware of who they are, aware of their superpower, aware of their true identity and their true calling to save the world from evil. And for Israel, the exodus is this defining moment of identity. All right, the third word is eschatology. And it's a little bit more technical and much longer. And it comes from the Greek word eschatos, which actually means final event or battle, last great event or end game. See, Israel believed that the way God was going to save the world from its own self-destruction would begin with Israel living out and showing the world a different way. Here is a community of people that is connected to their creator, who loves one another, who treats the earth and the land and creation as it should be treated, who flourish in the way that human beings were made to flourish. But there would always be evil forces working against God's purposes in the world, against God and Israel. There would always be Egypt's and Pharaoh's and bullies and oppressors. There would always be human pride and selfishness and conflict and injustice and violence. And eventually, at some point in the future, history would reach this climactic point, this eschatos, or this end game. And in this final battle, Israel would face all of God's enemies, and Israel would prevail, and God would finally bring his love and his healing and his justice and his wholeness into all the world. But it wouldn't happen without a fight, without good prevailing over evil. 
All right, so this is Avengers Endgame. Could have been called Avengers Eschatology, but that wouldn't have been as fun, right? This is the third movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where the fate of Middle Earth is hanging in the balance and all good and all evil are about to meet, right? This is the third movie in the latest Star Wars trilogy. This is the third movie in most trilogies where all of the enemies must finally be faced and defeated. So God has chosen Israel. He has made them his people to bring his rescue into the world. And one day, he will defeat all of his enemies. But there's a major wrinkle to the story, an unexpected twist. And it's the fourth word, the word exile. Uh, Like the Exodus, exile refers to a very specific historical event. Let me give you a few dates. Beginning in about 931 BC, the nation of Israel goes through a long period of decline. There's a civil war. The nation splits into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. There's corruption. There's infighting. There's violence. There's oppression. There's injustice throughout the land. And all of it eventually leads to instability and weakness. And as a result, in 722 BC, the Assyrians sweep in and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And the surviving Jewish leaders are taken into exile back to Babylon. And it seems that all is lost. And this is typical of superhero stories as well, right? I mean, this is usually the second movie. The empire strikes back, right? Or this is the low point in the story where our hero faces setbacks, where they begin to question their identity or they lose their faith or maybe they lose their superpower or like Frodo, they lose their life at the hands of a giant spider. And we're made to think all hope is gone, but we know it's not. We know our hero will return, and our hero will rise again. And in the Old Testament, this is the message of the prophets, that exile will happen because Israel has lost its way, and it's going to be really, really bad when it does. But there is hope. God will bring Israel back. And as Ezekiel describes, he will breathe new life into dead bones. Sure enough, in 539 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Persians had conquered the Babylonians by now, Cyrus issued an edict, a decree that all foreign peoples that the Babylonians had conquered could now return to their homelands to rebuild. And so over the next hundred years or so, the Jews began to return to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city walls. And to rebuild their nation. And all of this is described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as some other shorter prophets at the end of the Old Testament. And this is roughly where the Old Testament ends. And it seems like everything is back on track, right? The the people have returned. The nation is back. Frodo didn't die, right? He was just paralyzed and we didn't know it. But the mission of God to rescue the world through Israel is moving forward again. But there are two really big problems. 
First, there's no king in Israel. And you're not really in the ancient Near East, you're not a real nation unless you have a king. Your kingdom isn't back unless you have a king. And second, they don't even rule over themselves. They're still ruled by the Persians, and it stays that way for about 200 years. And then, in 323 BC, Alexander the Great conquers the ancient Near East, and the Jews come under the rule of first the Greeks and then two other dynasties called the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And not only are the Jewish people still living under foreign rule, but it's during this time that there is a massive influx of Greek or Hellenistic culture into Israel. People begin learning and speaking Greek, not Hebrew. They're influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek mythology, by Greek art and Greek architecture. And the Jewish people, far from regaining their influence and power, are actually losing it more and more and more. In fact, the Seleucid rulers began to oppress the Jews. They outlawed Jewish practices. They began burning copies of Jewish scripture and even desecrating the Jewish temple right there in Jerusalem. And so in 167 BC, the Jews decide to fight back. And this becomes known as the Maccabean Revolt. This is where the story of Hanukkah comes from. And for a few years, uh, the Jews seemingly gain their independence, right? It's during this time that they become, uh, they begin to really own this idea. It is us against the world. And so they start producing all sorts of apocalyptic literature that describe how they're going to have to fight this eschatological battle against all of their foreign oppressors to defeat evil and reestablish God's kingdom of Israel. And it's all going to happen one day when an anointed king returns to lead them into their glorious future. But the dream doesn't last long. Rulers in Israel began to fight amongst themselves. And in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey captures the city of Jerusalem and makes it part of the Roman Empire. A few years later, Caesar Augustus consolidates power as the first Roman emperor. He grows the empire greater than it's ever been. He raises taxes everywhere in the empire. In fact, there's a story that we all read every single December, right? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken across the empire so that even in this little backwoods town in northern Israel called Nazareth, there's a young couple who has to travel back to her hometown of Bethlehem in order to register for the census and pay the Roman taxes. Augustus raises taxes. He puts standing armies in every province and every major city. He supports the building of theaters and Roman arenas. Roman temples across the empire, and he imposes Roman law as the standard everywhere. And if you are a Jew living in the first century under the iron fist of Roman rule, everything you believe about yourself, about God, about our people, it's all in doubt. You see, it wasn't just a hassle to pay Roman taxes. I mean, it was. 
And, and it wasn't just embarrassing to see Roman soldiers on every street corner. And it wasn't just a, a problem that we have to obey Roman laws and defer to the Roman authorities. It's that every single one of these things was a daily reminder that we have failed as a people. And we have entirely lost our way. That the exile never really ended. We're still living it. And that the people who are supposed to rescue the world are in need of rescue themselves. This is the culture and the context that Jesus grows up in. The Jewish people are deeply lost about who they are. They're also deeply divided about what to do about it. In fact, there's uh, four different groups in Jesus' day that are proposing four different solutions. I want to go through them really quickly. Uh, one group was called the Essenes. And what they said is, we just need to separate from all that is wrong, from all that is evil. We need to separate from culture. We need to separate from the cities, from the world, from the pagan Romans. These were John the Baptist-like people who withdrew into the wilderness to live off the grid while the world destroyed itself. By the way, uh, this group of people lived in some caves near the Dead Sea and they preserved a whole bunch of Hebrew scriptures that were discovered about 75 years ago called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, a second group of people included Herod and the chief priests. And they believed in the way of compromise. Basically, they said, we can't hate the Romans all the time, right? We're going to have to work with them. We might just have to get our hands a little bit dirty in politics and in compromise and in working with them. And so Herod and many of the chief priests collaborated with the Roman officials. And as a result, they actually gained wealth and power and influence in Jewish society. Then you have a third group, the zealots. And they were the exact opposite end of the spectrum. They hated the idea of compromise. The Romans are God's enemies, and that means they are our enemies, and our only option is to fight back. And they drew inspiration from the Maccabean revolt, and in fact, they secretly began preparing for another revolt, a new rebellion, a new war against the Roman Empire. And then there was a fourth group of really thoughtful, well-intentioned religious leaders, and they were called the Pharisees. And, and before we judge them too quickly, we have to understand them and give them the benefit of the doubt. The Pharisees believed we have to purify ourselves. The reason that the Romans are still ruling over us, the reason that we have failed as a nation, the reason that we are still living in existential exile is because we've lost our identity. We're no longer the pure righteous, holy people that God has called us to be. And so we have to purify ourselves. And this is the world that Jesus lives in. These are the big ideas that Jesus is always, always engaging. And we don't have time to go through uh, the first three groups. You can do that on your own. But I want to look real briefly at how Jesus engages with the fourth group. Because it's the Pharisees that he engages the most. He talks with them. He eats meals with them. He listens to them. In fact, we're even told that there's some Pharisees that become followers of Jesus. But most did not. 
They couldn't accept some of the things that Jesus said. They couldn't accept some of the things that Jesus did. And maybe more than anything else, they couldn't accept the people that Jesus was hanging out with. Tax collectors and sinners. See, see, tax collectors were obviously those who were working with the Romans, right? And sinners was just this broad category of all of the people who weren't clean enough, who weren't righteous enough, who weren't moral enough, who weren't Jewish enough. And it's not just that the Pharisees looked down on all of these people with a sort of holier-than-thou attitude. I mean, maybe they did to some extent. But it's that they actually believed deep in their bones that the only way to restore the kingdom of Israel was to deal with the pollution and the dilution of Jewish identity. See, the problem for them in Israel was all the people that Jesus kept hanging out with. And they were so focused on moral purity according to their own definitions that they missed the bigger story. They forgot the bigger story of what God was doing. And so one day, Jesus decides to remind them. He's hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners again, and they begin to grumble about it. And Jesus tells them a story, and it's one of his most famous stories. And we're not actually going to read it because you already know it and we're almost out of time. But it's a story that is not just about the general concepts of love and forgiveness. It is about those things, but it's also about something way more specific that we almost always miss. Uh, Jesus describes a son who comes to his dad and says, hey, dad, let's pretend that you're dead and can you give me all my inheritance so I can go leave and do with it whatever I want? And his dad gives it to him. And so the son leaves home and he's basically forsaking his family, his name, his father. And as you know, he goes into a foreign country where he squanders all of the money. He finds himself in desperation. In fact, he has to hire himself out as a slave just to make ends meet. But things are really, really bad. And he realizes he should have never left home. He should have never abandoned his dad. Right? And he realizes if, if I can just return home, if I can just work for my dad as a servant would, I can never be a son again. I cut those ties a, a long time ago. But if he could just return home. And as Jesus is telling this story to first century Jews, two things would have been front and center in all of their minds. When Jesus talks about a son finding himself living as a slave in a foreign country, Jews would have immediately thought of the Exodus. Right? The son is Israel living in slavery in Egypt. This is a reminder of the Exodus that God can still rescue Israel. And then the second thing everyone would have thought of as they listened to this is this is about the exile. A story about God's son, that's what Israel is called all throughout the Old Testament, abandoning God and finding themselves living in exile in a foreign country and desperately longing to return home. See, the story of the prodigal son, before it's anything else, is an exodus story and an exile story. 
It's Jesus trying to say to the disciples and the Pharisees who are listening, remember the bigger story. Don't forget the bigger story. We are still living in the bigger story. Uh, Jesus continues, you know how it goes. He says that the son returns home. The father welcomes the son with open arms. He restores to him his identity as a son. And then the father even says, this son of mine was dead. And now he's alive again. See, Jesus is not just describing this moving scene so that we could know that if we ever leave and abandon God, that we can come back and God will welcome us with open arms. I mean, that's true, and that's part of it. But Jesus is talking about something bigger. He is telling the Pharisees that something is happening right now in Israel, in me and through me and everything I'm doing and everything I'm saying and all the people I'm hanging out with is a signal and a sign that the return from exile is happening right now. That the restoration from exile is happening right now. That the resurrection from exile is happening right now. Now, it's just looking way different than you ever thought it would because it's not about a restored kingdom for Israel. It's about a new kingdom of God. Jesus adds one more little part to the end of the story. Do you remember this? There's an older brother who's angry because the first son had abandoned their father and he was promiscuous and he had made all of these horrible, terrible, moral choices. He was anything but clean and righteous. How in the world could the dad ever welcome him back? And this is probably where Jesus looks right at the Pharisees who can't understand why Jesus is hanging out with all of these morally questionable people. And the problem is that they thought God was just going to save Israel And that he was only going to save Israel when Israel cleaned up its act. And Jesus is saying, no. God is going to save Israel, not because they clean up their act, but simply because they return to God and because God is so gracious. And he's also not just saving them so that then they can judge everybody else in the world. He's saving them so that they can be the means by which God would save and rescue everybody else in the world. And when the nation of Israel is not able to live into that calling, Jesus will do it for them. Now, this is a lot to think about. Uh, Perhaps this just gives you a bigger overview of the bigger story. Uh, Perhaps you're here and you feel like you are living in exile in your own life right now. This sense of being displaced or rootless or far from home, maybe literally we are the most displaced culture in history, but maybe spiritually. And maybe Jesus is just inviting you to come home. There's also a lesson in all of this uh, for Christians today, uh, particularly Christians who feel like maybe they've lost influence in the wider culture and might be tempted to respond in the ways that those four groups in the first century were tempted to respond. And the lesson is this, don't miss the bigger story. The people of those four groups missed what Jesus was doing right in front 
of their eyes. And perhaps for all of us, it's simply a reminder that we are not just saved from something, we are saved for something. We have been rescued so that we can be agents of God's rescue for the whole world. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would help us to think deeply about all of these things. And though it might be hard sometimes to connect all of the dots, to understand all of the complexity, especially when things were just so different in the culture and what was happening in the history, it's just so different from our world today. God, I, help, I pray that you would help us to see the bigger story of what you're up to. Help us to listen for you, to look for you, when we need to, to wait for you, and to know what you're up to, not just in our lives, but in this world. We pray this in your name. Amen.